As we're, as we're beginning Second Chronicles, I don't have a lot of introductory things to say about the book because we've already done that with First Chronicles. Um, I have a couple things to say, though, and one of them is not from me. It's from St. Jerome, who lived 1,600-some years ago. And he said this, The book of Chronicles, which, in fact, is a summation of the entire Old Testament, is a book of such great importance that someone can only make a fool of himself if he pretends to know the scriptures without it. Which, if you're, just occurred to me, if you know, you're 50, 60 years old and you've never read Second Chronicles and then you come across this, you might feel kind of bad. But I don't know if Jerome was known for his people skills, uh, necessarily. Every painting of Jerome that exists um, has a skull in it. Did you know that? (laughs) It it does. Uh, There are a couple of reasons for that, but he, when, uh, Jerome is the one who went to Bethlehem and translated the Bible in a cave in Bethlehem, probably the cave of the Nativity, and um, there is a certain element of original sin and of man's mortality and so forth, but it's depicted by that skull that was always um, along with him. There are other things involved there, but just notice that in paintings, if you see a church father with a skull there, like as if it's a Hamlet scene, that, that's, that's Jerome. Yeah. First um, Chronicles, uh, of course, gave us everything from the beginning of the book of Genesis to the death of David. Now, Second Chronicles will take us from the Solomon taking the throne to the return from exile. Um, and uh, this book, I, I could have put in an outline, I suppose, but Second Chronicles really has the stories about Solomon in the beginning, first nine chapters or seven. Anyway, um, it's kind of stepped like a pyramid. There's a kind of a peak to it, then it kind of comes back down again. Then after that, though, is just what happened king after king after king. And unlike the book of Kings, Chronicles doesn't have the 40 kings of Judah and the 40 kings of Israel. It just has the kings of Judah. So they're, they're, that, that's the main difference that you see when you read the two books. Um, uh, I say 40 and 40, it's 20 and 20. Um, but... Uh, but um, and so there, there, some of the kings of Israel of the north are mentioned, but it just, we're just focusing on the kings of the south. And so how would you make that into an outline? It's really just, you know, like, kind of like one president after another. You just take whichever one is next, right? So something along those lines. So that's why I didn't, but did any of you in school have to learn the names of all the kings? I was surprised this morning, quite a few people did once upon a time. And I thought, why? Why would you, why would you have to memorize that? There, aren't there other better things to memorize, you know, like passages with gospel and law and things rather than just a list of kings? But I, if, I, if, I, if we were still teaching it that way, I probably would have come up with a funny poem or something. But. All right, well, let's begin, the, let's begin Second Chronicles here. So God blesses Solomon with wisdom and possessions and 
Um, do we just, maybe I should do a little trivia question. Anybody know how Solomon got to be so wise? He asked for it. That's all. He, yeah, God asked him. So that's a very brief little account, and we're going to read it right now. So, uh, Solomon, son of David, firmly established his rule over his kingdom. The Lord his God was with him and made him very great. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of the units of a thousand and a hundred, to the judges, to all the leaders of all Israel, that is, to all the leading fathers. So the dads of all the clans and so forth. So Solomon calls a big meeting. Um, I'm guessing everybody had to stand up except him. And, they, and he's got all of these leaders, the, um, the uh, Elephim, not elephants, but that's the word for commander of a thousand and so forth. And the commanders of the hundreds and these are army units and then the judges and the leaders and so forth. And he speaks. Solomon and the whole assembly with him went to the high place at Gibeon because God's tent of meeting, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was located there. So uh, they go to Gibeon. Um, remember, the temple's not built yet. He's about to build the temple. That's what we're going to see happen. But now he's got to go to Gibeon. Um, and what do we learn here about the tent of meeting? Moses made it, and it's still that, that tent. You know, and maybe it's been repaired, but I, I kind of in my head have, I wonder if one of those tent flaps was 400 years old. You know, that's how, that's how long ago it was when Moses built this thing. And actually, Moses didn't build it. We're going to get the guy's name in a verse, but... Uh, yeah, I, I know. And, and Although a lot of this stuff was made of leather, so it would have some lasting uh, staying power, right? Unless leather gets torn. If, if leather gets torn, can you, can you mend it very easily? I don't see any, on Fonzie's jacket, I don't remember seeing any patches. You know, it's just, it just, did he? Uh, well, the decorative patches, but not, but not repair patches. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, Okay. David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jearim to the place he had prepared for it because he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Remember this from 1 Chronicles. David wants to bring the, the, the ark up and they have that oops moment when the guy dies, grabbing it and they, David leaves it there and then they, they keep going. And then finally David brings it in, just dancing with all his might you know, getting down, boogieing and everything, and his wife gets mad at him out the window, and, but he brings it in, and he, he pitches a tent, not the, not the holy place, but he pitches a tent near his house, up on the north side of Jerusalem, and that's where the ark goes, so he keeps it in this, this place. Uh, but the bronze altar, which this man, Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, was set up in front of the tent of the Lord. So that was where Solomon and the assembly sought God. So the ark is in Jerusalem right now. But the old tent, Moses' old tabernacle and the altar are in this other place uh, at, uh, at uh, Gibeon. Um, which, by the way, isn't very far. Um, so... 
Gibeon, uh, do you all know, have you, have you heard me say this often enough on Christmas Eve? That how, how far is Bethlehem from Jerusalem? It's the distance from MVL to this church. That's the distance. They're, they're right next to each other. Were you going to say one thumb away, Brad? That's the distance from, on any map, from the top of the Dead Sea to Jerusalem. Put your thumb down and that's in any scale. <laughs> Always one thumb away from the... T- but no, uh, but now Gibeon, however, is even closer. So do you know how when you're driving from MVL and you come past the uh, quartzite quarry where my son Peter's windshield got smashed a couple weeks ago and I found out that I don't have insurance for a broken window? What kind of insurance do I have? Um, I found out. I changed it. And, uh, uh, and, uh, but as, you, as you're driving past there, you can tell, you can see the spire of Cathedral and of St. Paul's, right? You can see them out there. That's the distance from, he, from, from, from Gibeon to, uh, to Jerusalem, so about four miles away. They're very close by. Now, I want to say something else about this man, Bezalel. So there are two individuals back in Exodus who are given the command to build everything. And the builder of the tabernacle was this Bezalel. And the builder of the bronze work was Oholiab. Okay? Um, no, I've got that backwards. Oholiab was the builder of everything. And Bezalel was the builder of the, of the good bronze work. But here, I wish they had gone... I mean, I, far be it from me to criticize an author of scripture, but I kind of wish he had done us one more generation here. Because did you know this about this man? Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, was the son of Caleb? Wouldn't that be kind of cool to know? That this is the Caleb's great-grandson. And Caleb, Caleb and Joshua are not young, they're old, but they were among the spies. But now Caleb's young great-grandson turns out to be this fantastic artist and craftsman, and he's the one God calls on to work here on this thing. I think that's kind of a cool detail. Um, but I've double-checked this a couple of times, and that's the man. By the way, who is this her? Because we know something about him, too. He could be like faithful Aaron. Prophet's hands. He's the other guy who held up Aaron's hands at that battle um, with the Midianites, or against the, uh, the Amalekites. Aaron held up one arm, and her, this her, Caleb's son, held up the, or Caleb's uh, grandson, held up the other arm of Moses. So this is a family that's been faithful to the Lord and the Lord used I mean, in service. So some kind of interesting information here about these individuals. And I, I also mention this because those men, Bezalel and Oholiab, the builders of the original temple and the, and the altar work and so forth, God picked them. God doesn't mention any other names in who should do what crafts work. Just those two guys. Now, who had God chosen to build the new temple? Solomon. So Solomon is remembering, uh, you know, God chose me, God chose that guy too. 
So there's some, and we're going to find out the name of the guy who's going to build, who's going to uh, provide some of the other work and the, the, uh, the, uh, the detailed metalwork also. So though we, we have that parallel between the building of the original tabernacle and now the building of the temple where these men are named specifically by the Lord. Um, so they went out uh, to the tent and to where the altar is. And even though the Ark of the Covenant wasn't in that tent, it was empty, they're making sacrifices. And by the way, are those sacrifices acceptable to God? Yes, God accepts those sacrifices. And I, why do I emphasize that? Because what were they using after the return from the exile? Did their tent have anything in it? Their holy of holies was also empty. You know, the, the ark was gone, and, but God was still accepting their sacrifices. So there's a parallel there too that maybe is important enough for us to notice at least. So here's Gibeon, here's Jerusalem. Actually, I, I think that my dots are not close enough. I think the Gibeon dot should be twice as close as it is. But you get the idea, right? Is that the right slide? Yes. Okay. Solomon went to the bronze altar there in the presence of the Lord at the tent of meeting. And he, this is at Gibeon. And he offered a thousand burnt offerings upon the altar. Ah, that's our, these are white faces like Grandpa used to raise. I, that, that's a lot of, how long would it have taken? I don't know. Just to cut up one cow, I think it would take me about two weeks. Um, I don't, I have no idea how, but with all the priests at work, you know, hundreds, maybe a thousand, maybe more than a thousand guys, maybe it would take a long time. I'm not sure. Mostly, I just wanted to show you this slide because I worked so hard at doubling this picture in, uh, micro, in, in Windows Paint, and I wanted to. Yeah, so there you go. Anyway. <laughs> All right, enough of that. So. It's, yeah, okay. That night, that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask for whatever you want me to give you. So God appears in generally in four ways. He appears by having a prophet show up and the prophet does all the speaking. He might appear in person as he does occasionally. The angel of the Lord, right, shows up. He might appear in a vision, which is a kind of a waking thing. I, you know, and then he might appear in a dream. And this is that kind of Appearance where God appears in a dream to Solomon, but Solomon is not just passive. You know how in some of your dreams you're just watching stuff happen, but in some of your dreams you're actually interacting. Like one that I have when I'm somehow swimming through the water of the hallways of my childhood elementary school, and all the light is blue, and I'm just swimming past all the, you know, and, and, and anyway. Where was I? Oh, the dream. Right. Okay, the dream and nightmares. God appears to Solomon and says, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon said to God, you have shown great mercy and faithfulness to my father David, and you have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your commitment to David, my father, be fully realized, because you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. 
Um, I don't know if Israel was really that numerous, but there's a lot of them there. Now give me wisdom and knowledge so that I can come and go before this people, for who is up to the task of judging this great people of yours? So he simply says, give me wisdom. I'm not up to this. See, young man, how old is Solomon at this time? What we know is that he had a one-year-old son. How old does that make him? 18, 19, whatever he was, something like that. God said to Solomon, because this was on your heart and you did not ask for riches, possessions, and honor or for the lives of those who hate you or even for many days of life. And because you have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself so that you can judge my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge will be given to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, the likes of which the kings before you never had, nor will those who come after you. So God basically says, all that stuff you could have asked for but didn't, I'm going to give that to you too. But here you go. I wondered if we could think of a ruler, not necessarily the Bible, who wanted to become king or ruler or president or whatever just on account of wealth or riches. Can you think of someone who did that? I, I can think of one. I think I should be careful saying his name, but uh, um, uh, back in the 80s, uh, do you remember Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos and her gigantic thousand pairs of shoe collection and they, you know, they, they just kind of wanted the money and he wanted to get back in to get the money and then get out and yeah, and uh, uh, with regard to honor, someone who only wanted to be ruler to get the glory or the honor. There might be a lot of those, actually, um, over the years. But the death of their enemies. He just wanted to be king to kill his enemies. And although I could name a couple of maybe fascist dictators, uh, I, 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 even Alexander the Great kind of comes to mind about it. He just wanted to go to war against his enemies and... Um, with regard to long life or, or legacy, um, there, there might be some who want to become leaders so that they leave a name for themselves, but then they get in the office and they realize, I don't really know what I'm doing, you know, and they try to spin things for themselves, but there are some dictators like that too. Solomon, uh, so we, we come back here. After Solomon had gone up to the high place in Gibeon, by the way, does the word high place kind of make you nervous? A little bit? Most of the high places in the Bible are places of pagan worship. This one wasn't. It was a place of divine worship, so high place. He returned from the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he ruled as king over Israel. So all we know about this incident is that it was early in his reign because the Temple is getting going in the fourth year of his reign. And um, we're going to find that out a little bit later. And, uh, and that he does this quite early. This is a picture I wanted to show you, though, here. Um, this is from Gibeon. Do you see on the, on the left it says Mount of Olives? And then in the middle it says Dome of the Rock. This is a modern picture, obviously. And then just to the right of that is the lower city of David, part of Jerusalem. But that whole thing over there where those arrows are pointing is kind of Jerusalem. And there's kind of a dark space. It's kind of a gray space in between, in the middle of the hill, kind of. That's kind of the wall of Jerusalem. 
And then in the foreground is, can you tell that it's a round structure surrounded kind of by trees, by pine trees? Anybody have a guess as to what that modern round structure is? Yeah, I think it is actually a water tank. Like it's, like it's a water tower. And that's part of the feed system um, in some way like that. But this is Gibeon from, and it, just as you would, as you're driving, notice the spires of New Alm in the distance from, say, four miles away. From Gibeon, yeah, just over there. You know, you could walk. How long would it, does it take an average pre-human being to walk four miles? One hour. Yeah. Let's continue. We're in First Chronicles 114. Solomon accumulated chariots and charioteers. What's a charioteer? Yeah, it's the kids with the round hats that, no, no, that's musketeers. Um, so they're, they're the drivers of the chariot. That was supposed to be funny. Really, okay, never mind. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 charioteers. And he stationed them in the chariot cities as well as with the kings in Jerusalem. So chariot cities. Um, and he had to put the horses somewhere. How many horses can he get in a barn? Depends on the barn, but yeah. Well, Solomon had pretty good barns. This is a, really a great map of the, of, Jeru- of, the, of the Temple Mount of Jerusalem today. Um, the dark orange, are they orange? Um, spaces are, you see the Dome of the Rock, which is the octagon. I mentioned before, the Dome of the Rock is actually a Byzantine Christian church design that the Muslims simply used for their, for the, for their little shrine there, but oh well. And then the, below that, um, it says uh, Masjid el-Aqsa. It's a, a um, close-up of it, but do you see to the right, it says Solomon Stables, but they're kind of dotted lines. That's because they're underground. And any idea what the little squares, also dotted lines, would be? Those are where the bases of pillars are. So it's a map of the, of the pillar work in this lower underground area. Um, and uh, this is a pretty good picture of it from the early 20th century. Okay, but do you see how close together the pillars are? You know, it's, it's obviously a, a tightly grouped lattice work because for, remember what we're holding up above, it's stone. How do you hold stone above your head without being terrified? Well, it's with arches because that's the, the strongest natural uh, uh, support known to man. Because what an arch does is it takes the weight descending on the arch and it throws it down the archway to the feet of the, of, the, of the arch and into the ground below. That's where all the weight goes, is into the ground below. That's the genius of the archway. While Roman arches all over the world are often still standing. And some of them still being used um, for what they were. And even though they've survived earthquakes for two, you know, for two millennia and so forth. Well, do you see, now notice above the arches though, Do you see those holes in the square holes, which are kind of air vents? Just want you to notice, because we're going to go from a black and white to a color photograph. But just notice that these are the same archways, right? Except something has happened. A new ceiling has been added and half the arches have been removed. Is that a wise move? 
It, there's stone above. Um, and more than that, not only have, have a lot of arches been removed and, and so forth, but now it's, what's on the floor? It's not carpeting. It's Muslim prayer rugs. And now we come to the, to the, um, the uh, scandal because the four quarters of Jerusalem, uh, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, and Armenian, um, have divvied up Jerusalem and there is a, a, essentially a law, and I believe the law is something like this, nobody gets to build a new church without consulting everybody else. Okay, so the churches that we have are the churches that we have. You know, if you're going to build a new one, you have to get, you know, permission to do it. Well, what has now happened is that underground, without anybody's permission, the Muslims have taken this, by the way, gigantic structure, right? And built an underground mosque. And weakened the structure of the Temple Mount. So there's a, there are a couple different sides to this. And, it's, and, and by the way, is it very secret if I know about it? I mean, just... I, not really. I, I, uh, um, but, uh, yeah, so that's what it was. That's what it is. Um, okay. In Jerusalem, the king made silver and gold as plentiful as ordinary stones. He made cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the Shephelah. There must have been a lot of sycamore fig trees in the Shephelah. That's all I'm going to say. Shephelah to Buffalo. Um, that's the lowland in the, in the foothills, actually. Solomon's horses were important. Anybody know about horses? Did you? Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and... How, how does a, a, a British grandmother call her grandchildren in for tea? Cooey! Right? That's that place name there. By the way, that may not be the word Egypt. Uh, I have this note on your sheet. Um, the place name in Hebrew is spelled Muzurim. And the thing about that is Muzurim, the people of Muzur, is spelled exactly the same as Mizraim, which is the Hebrew word for Egypt. And the thing about Muzur is that it's right next to Pui up north in, in Asia Minor where they have really good horses. So I kind of think that that's supposed to be Muzur, the people of Muzur and Kui, and not Egypt and Kui. But is there a theological problem with this verse if we don't know? Yeah, not really. So that's yeah, okay. Don't worry about it. The king's dealers bought them from Kui at the market price. They could import a chariot from Egypt for 600 silver shekels and a horse for 150. In the same way, these dealers exported chariots to all the kings of the Hittites and Aram. So they got all their horses from this place. And what kind of horses were they? Well, I mean, what, what variety, what species? They were Arabian. That particular Arabian horse looks a little scrawny to me. A little death-like to me, but... Uh, um, however, Arabian horses are deceptively skinny. Um, they have extraordinarily strong hooves. The thing about Arabians is 
that they were bred to not necessarily have to be shod so that their, their, their hooves could stand being on hard stone or on a hard desert floor or a sand or a, 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 a salt desert. They have a very short back, so not extraordinary. An American quarter horse has a longer back and so forth, but these have a shorter back. Deceptively delicate appearance, exceptionally hardy animals, and the Arabians favored mares. What's a mare? Female horse. Yeah, yeah. If you have bad dreams about a female horse, it is called a nightmare. That's where the word comes from. It's a nightmare. Um, now, just a comment about this. We have to, yeah, we have to. Um, the Crusaders favored stallions. So in the in the in the in the 10th century, 11th century, 12th century, when the Arabian, when the when the Muslims were fighting the the Crusaders, the the, the uh, European Crusaders, all those English and German and French Crusaders had stallions, and the stallions were getting ready to charge a bunch of Oriental mares. That made a very interesting battle sometimes. Um, and there are reports of things going on in those battles, like they. That's not what I expected the charge to be like, you know, things like that. When Baldwin and uh, some of those other uh, reporters that we hear about the Crusades from. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.